Hi, I'm Brent Stafford and this is RegWatch by RegulatorWatch.com. It's a turbulent time for vaping. Over the past 24 months, the industry has struggled to manage one crisis after another. Panic over the so-called teen vaping epidemic. Hysteria over the so-called vaping-related lung illness. And a mad rush to ban vaping products. A vicious attack by anti-vaping activists exploiting the COVID-19 pandemic for ideological gain. All the while fending off an endless stream of suspect science and a rowdy regulatory process. Essentially, the turbulence over vaping comes down to a battle within public health over tobacco harm reduction. The divide is continental, both in space and mind. Joining us today to talk about these issues and more is Dr. Kenneth Warner. Over his 48-year career, he's presented in over 250 professional publications, served as the World's Bank representative to negotiations on the Framework Convention on Tobacco Control, served as the senior scientific editor of the 25th anniversary Surgeon General's Report on Smoking and Health, and was a founding member of the Board of Directors of the Truth Initiative. Dr. Warner, thanks for joining us today on RegWatch. Thanks for having me. Oh, thank you, and thanks for putting up with... Uh, a little Facebook issue we had there, but we should be on, up, and live, thankfully. We're very excited to have you on. I'm, I'm, I'm going to get you to pronounce it instead of me doing it. You are, you are Dean Emeritus. Thank you very much, and Professor Emeritus, <laughs> right, of Public Health of University of Michigan. That was just so much easier having you to do that. So, um, and you're also on the Science Advisory uh, Committee in Canada for Health Canada. Is that correct? That is correct. And in the for U vaping products for vaping products, and in the U.S. with the FDA, right? The Tobacco Product Scientific Advisory Committee for FDA. That's great. And so, and what are you doing now? You're retired, correct? I'm doing what I always did, except I'm not getting paid. <laughs> Well, that's fantastic. Well, there you go. So let's jump into the issues. And obviously, there's the big cloud that's hanging over all of the conversations that are happening around the world, really, quite frankly. For us, vapors and the vaping industry has a bit of an issue, obviously, with what's going on with COVID because it feels like an extension of what's been a long-term attack uh, that's been happening on vaping. So why don't we get this out of the way right off the bat? What, what can you talk about in terms of the convergence between the vaping and the COVID issue? I can't talk about much of anything in that area for the simple reason that I don't have the relevant expertise. Uh, this is clearly an issue that's being debated. It's getting lots of press attention and the like, but I have no particular expertise to address it. That's, I'm, I'm an economist by training. I don't have the biological knowledge, and I, I will leave that to the experts. Sure. And, you know, for our audience, just to understand, we will, we have some areas for sure that, you know, we've got some crossover that we can talk about. But what we're not going to get into is picking apart all of the bad news stories and all that kind of stuff. But, we, you know, we are going to talk and uh, uh, get Dr. Warner's uh, opinion on some stuff on COVID. So, Stick with us, but this this interview needs to exist outside of the hysteria of COVID because public health is going through a bit of a trial here. And I think that, and I personally know and professionally think that what's happened in tobacco control in terms of kind of the battle that's happening could be spilling out in other areas of public health. So let me ask you, what do you think is kind of the source of the divide? And if it is tobacco harm reduction, 
Why is tobacco harm reduction such an issue? Well, tobacco harm reduction has been an issue for a while now. Uh, what fascinates me about it is that harm reduction is a major way of approaching a large number of public health problems. Having said that, we seem not to be interested in it as a field of public health when it comes to tobacco control. Frankly, I think uh, people have been so beaten up over the years about the role of industry in spreading the tobacco epidemic, the smoking epidemic, uh, that they're just very concerned about anything having to do with any industry. And frankly, there's a puritanical streak within public health that says that uh, people shouldn't be consuming nicotine in any form. Uh, they shouldn't be consuming products. They should just quit. And we know that that doesn't work for a large number of people. And uh, many of them are apparently being able to get off of uh, cigarettes by virtue of vaping. And that's a very good thing for public health. So from, and you know, you and I tug, you know, struggled a little bit there, whether or not I was going to use the word preeminent. And I told, I, I'm going to use it just because, only because, only because Dr. Warner, uh, a vast majority of other researchers that have been on our show uh, give you that deference. And so, I mean, they, they refer to you that way. So I'm old. Yeah. So <laughs> there you go. So there you go. So, I mean, you are, you're definitely well-known, highly respected. Um, you know where the bodies are buried. Uh, I've been in this uh, area for some 45 years or so in the tobacco policy arena. So let me ask you this. So, I mean, is vaping, is vaping, does vaping save lives? Obviously, that is controversial at a certain level, but I believe the evidence is pretty compelling that it does. Uh, I, there's no single study that answers that question affirmatively, but when you put together all of the evidence, and I would say there are at least a half a dozen different types of evidence, I think it's a pretty compelling case that vaping is helping people to quit smoking. It's and a, that's the key thing, isn't it? If you quit smoking, that's where the saving lives happens. Sure. I mean, if, if vaping were as dangerous as smoking and people were simply substituting vaping for smoking, there would be no gain. But I think the vast majority of scientists are convinced that vaping is substantially less hazardous than smoking. Anybody who can't quit smoking otherwise but can switch to vaping is doing themselves a very big favor. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, pre-COVID, pre so we carve out COVID, right? There, was, there has been a huge pushback uh, within public health and then a, such a strong pushback from activist groups and, and the health voluntaries and so forth. Where does that come from? Because sometimes it really does feel like it's not based in science. Well, as I said, I think part of it is simply a puritanical streak within the field of public health. And here we are talking about a product that gives some people pleasure, uh, that involves an action that looks like smoking in many instances, uh, that gives them nicotine, an addictive drug. And uh, there are a lot of people in public health that don't like any of those things and just think they're not acceptable. Uh, I, I've, I've heard people say in public health, professionals, say that even if nicotine addiction was completely harmless, they would still be opposed to it because it's addictive. And, you know, that's just not, to me, a reasonable position to take. You know, you nailed something there that 
I've been trying to get my head around from a research point of view, and I kind of look back at different ways in which um, groups of people kind of formulate the, their strategy for telling others what to do uh, across a wide range of political uh, kind of setups. And one of them seems to be this really intense uh, reaction to people experiencing individual pleasures. So, you know, as an individual, you know, you escape off with your little nicotine pleasure. We can't have that, right? If it was a group pleasure, maybe. But if there's an individual pleasure. There's some, there is something definitely individual about your enjoyment of nicotine as opposed to, say, other pleasurable things to do. Sure. I mean, it's nicotine has a bad image. It's got a bad rap. Uh, we know, for example, and this is really disturbing, half of the public believes that nicotine is the principal ingredient in cigarette smoke that is causing the cancer associated with smoking. And in point of fact, we have no evidence that nicotine has any major effect on tobacco-related diseases other than keeping smokers smoking. We've got 7,000 chemical compounds in cigarette smoke. 70 of them are known human carcinogens, causes of cancer in humans. Uh, many of them cause cardiovascular disease. You can run down the laundry list. Those are what are killing people. It's not the nicotine. The nicotine is keeping people smoking. And that's where it's a danger. It's, it, but the public tends to perceive it that the nicotine is the chemical that is causing all this disease. If that's the case, then understandably, they're going to see vaping as being a dangerous behavior as well. Seeing we're in nicotine already, quick question with regards to the you know, damaging a young person's brains up until 25 years old. That's been pushed very hard in the last two years by public health agencies. Is, is there some credence to that? Well, I, I'm, I, forgive me for smiling here, but I, I find it enormously ironic that at a time uh, when we are seeing what may be unusually, certainly are unusually low levels of nicotine consumption by kids, compared to what we had back, let's say, in the mid-1990s, uh, when there, just for example, 36% of high school seniors smoked in the past 30 days in 1995 or 1996. Wow. Now we're down to something like 7%. I think it may be below that in the most recent data. Uh, there was a time when this information first came out, which was basically research on laboratory animals, that nicotine could damage the developing brain when all kinds of kids were using nicotine and we never heard about this. Now we're hearing about it because of vaping. And you know the irony, as I say, is enormous because we have much lower levels of use of nicotine products today than we did 20, 25 years ago. And now the argument's being brought up. Yeah, and I always wonder too because you know didn't a huge uh, portion of the U.S. population smoke for a good 60, 70 years? Sure. I mean, we had uh, well over fifty percent of males smoking back in the nineteen fifties, and uh, women were behind men in terms of their rate of smoking. But they were starting to catch up and, and came very close. Uh, once uh, that was interfered with, shall we say, by the Surgeon General's report, that's what kind of turned everything around in 1964. But uh, smoking was the norm. Uh, so it was something you were expected to do, particularly if you were a virile male. So it, it, it begs the question then, how in the heck did we invent the computer and put a man on the moon if all these males are running <laughs> around with brain damage? 
Well, I, I've, I've always uh, said I can't imagine how much smarter I might have been if I hadn't smoked when I was uh, younger. Uh, entire generation of people, you're right, accomplished some pretty remarkable things. But think of what we could have done if we hadn't smoked. It seems to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, I have a feeling you may uh, concur with this opinion, but there's a distinct lack of wisdom and common sense uh, with regard to this assault on vaping. Well, there is and there isn't. So, yes, I, I, I certainly agree with you overall that there is a lack of common sense. But again, if you think about how many times the cigarette industry basically successfully beat up on the public health community and fooled the public health community, there's an understandable reluctance within that public health community to accept another industry producing a product that relies on nicotine that is not perfectly harmless uh, and that is now being used by large numbers of kids, it's understandable that they would be worried about it. Think, for example, about what happened when filtered cigarettes came out in the 1950s. Uh, big tobacco smoking and cancer scare comes out in the early 1950s. Filtered cigarettes are advertised as taking the bad stuff out of cigarettes, but allowing the pleasure through. Smokers bought it. Even worse than that was when low-tar and nicotine cigarettes were sold starting in the late 1960s, early 70s, uh, with the notion that it was tar and nicotine that were harming people and that these products were going to significantly reduce harm. The public health community bought the argument if you look at the major textbooks on internal medicine, Harrison's textbook on, on internal medicine back in the early, even the early 1980s, they were saying to doctors, if your patient is a smoker and can't quit, get them to smoke low tar and nicotine cigarettes. We've learned subsequently that the low tar and nicotine cigarette was a public relations device. It was technologically designed to fool the smoking testing machines and people who were smoking low-tar nicotine cigarettes were getting their lung cancers further down in the lung, but they were still getting them. And uh, a lot of people have continued smoking for decades because the cigarette industry managed to fool them with product innovation. So I think it's understandable that many people in public health would be wary of a new industry, especially one that is affiliated in, in places with the tobacco industry, uh, producing a product that delivers nicotine and uh, is being portrayed, was being portrayed with the same kind of imagery with which uh, the cigarette companies were selling cigarettes in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Right. Yeah, so, uh, the, so Big Tobacco was a bad actor, there's no doubt. Still are, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, you know, I mean, vapors, they, they just recoil, you know, as the industry and as consumers and users of the products and the devices, they just recoil because, you know, they created this industry to get away from big tobacco and then to be branded um, as a tobacco product and subject to, you know, these types of regulations. And then, of course, the assault on, on vaping. Uh, because they're just considered to be cigarettes. It's just really, quite frankly, for a lot of people, it's just too much, you know? I, I certainly understand that. And uh, I, I am not personally happy about where things have headed. Uh, and I'm very concerned about where they're going to head, depending on how FDA 
uh, enforces this PMTA requirement coming in May. But uh, the fact is that there have been many purveyors of vaping products, many companies, small companies, that have used the old tactics and tried to sell them to kids and young adults. And we, if we're going to be balanced and fair, we can't let them off the hot seat for that. Having said that, they're also producing a product that has the potential to save many lives and to, I don't know if it would eventually get rid of cigarettes, but it certainly has the potential to replace a significant portion of cigarette market. Nothing would be better for public health. So let's run through then. Um, we've got set up a, a few slides here to walk the audience through what you call is, I think, the the evidence, the convincing evidence for uh, vaping as a cessation product. Is that exact? Uh, do I think I have that right? Well, it, first of all, you, they can't make any claims that under law that they're sure. cessation products because they haven't been approved to say that. Uh, I have looked at a number of different forms of evidence and concluded that they all combine to suggest that vaping is increasing smoking cessation. Uh, I believe this is true, certainly in the United States. I believe it's true in the UK as well. Um, the first one is uh, some randomized controlled trials. We don't have enough of these, but we have a very prominent one by Peter Hayek and his colleagues. It was published in the New England Journal of Medicine this past year. Uh, the importance of this study is they went to an English smoking cessation clinic and they took smokers who wanted to quit and didn't have any particular preference for how they did it. And they randomized them into two groups, one of which was given e-cigarettes along with counseling. The other was given nicotine replacement products along with the same kind of counseling. At the end of a year, the vapors were almost twice as likely to have quit smoking as the people who were using the governmentally authorized smoking cessation products. So that's a pretty compelling kind of piece of evidence. We have other randomized trials as well, uh, some of them coming out just recently that support this basic notion. And then we have the evidence from population studies looking at what has been happening to population levels of tobacco use. And uh, in both the UK and the US, uh, there are three or four, I think, very influential papers by some of the leading scholars in the field, Robert West uh, and his colleague Emma Beard in the UK, Xu Hongzhu in the US. Both of them suggest that vaping has decreased smoking by about 10 to 15 percent in a year. Now, 10 to 15 percent isn't the answer to the problem of smoking. In public health terms, it's a pretty significant impact. And keep in mind, this is all occurring against this backdrop of opposition to vaping in the public, in the media, and in the mainstream public health field. So we're getting some, I think, pretty significant evidence from these population studies that vaping does make a difference. We have other population studies that are indicating that frequent vaping is associated with increased smoking cessation, but they found that infrequent vaping, you know, less than daily and so on, is associated with a reduced quit rate. And there are about three or four studies that have that same conclusion. That helps to explain some of the discrepant evidence on whether vaping is associated overall with quitting or not. 
Of course, you have to control for whether people are trying to quit. Some people may be using vaping to supplement their smoking intentionally. Um, and that probably falls in more of that category of the infrequent vaping. And probably, frankly, those are people who don't like vaping, and hence it's not going to help them to quit. And they may be having trouble quitting with other methods. So then we have uh, other, other evidence, some of the, that I really enjoy as an economist myself, is research by some of my colleagues that has found that if you tax e-cigarettes or otherwise restrict the sale of e-cigarettes, you tend to see an increase in smoking. Some of these studies are referring to adult smoking and others among them refer to kids. Uh, there's two of them, for example, that found uh, that when we first started restricting the sale of vaping products to uh, non-minors, people 18 and older, uh, you tended to see higher rates of smoking in those states that imposed those restrictions than the states that did not. So we're getting some pretty interesting evidence, I wouldn't call it compelling, but certainly very interesting evidence that restrictions on vaping lead to increased smoking. You can assume the opposite would hold as well. Next, we've got data demonstrating that smoking cessation rates have increased and that e-cigarettes are the single most widely used aid in smoking cessation attempts. And this is again true in both the UK and the US. So more smokers are using vaping products in their attempts to quit than they are the other government approved cessation pharmaceuticals, nicotine replacement therapy products, uh, and anything else. Let me interrupt so you. you. Let me interrupt you there, uh, Dr. Warner, for a second. Uh, my question here is this, is that during the um, the whole scare in the fall with E-Valley, which we'll talk about coming up here, we had often uh, the parents in the parents groups and so forth and some of the health voluntaries sitting there in the White House uh, with the president saying that there is no evidence showing that vaping is effective for smoking cessation. I just want to bring that into the conversation here because it seems to me and for, to most people that the, that the anti-vaping opponents just don't recognize that research. Well, this is a, a phenomenon in our society more generally, and that is people recognize what they want to believe, and uh, they will tend to follow the research that's consistent with their beliefs. Uh, this is actually, we've got a literature on this in the psychology field dating back uh, several decades now, but it strikes me as being especially relevant in the current era. And that's because we living in a period when facts are no longer facts, when science doesn't matter, we've tended to discredit science, and people believe what they want to believe. And I think that's a major factor of what's going on here. We're not getting any good civil discussion between the two sides of the, if you want to call it a debate, you can call it a debate over e-cigarettes. Yeah, it certainly feels that way. Did you have anything more to add here except for hooray on uh <laughs> No, I mean, I, again, putting these pieces together, we have a couple of more pieces here. Uh, just we take a look at the fact that smoking prevalence and the sale of cigarettes have declined at an unusually rapid rate precisely during the era of vaping. I think this is especially noteworthy when we're looking at kids and young adults. 
if you look at the data on smoking among kids, so monitoring the future, which is a study of uh, high school and middle school kids' use of drugs of all kinds that dates back 40 some odd years. Uh, during that period, they, they've covered smoking in high school seniors that entire period and then uh, 10th and 8th graders starting in the 1990s. Uh, what we've observed is that smoking has been on the decline for the last 25 or more years. If you take a look at the period during which that decline accelerated most, it coincides perfectly with the period when vaping became popular among kids. So the first time we saw a significant percentage of kids vaping was in 2014. Uh, that was the first year in which we saw a large proportion. By large, I mean bigger than about 5%. That was also the year that we saw one of the largest declines in cigarette smoking uh, prevalence in history among kids. And if you look at the entire period from then through 2019, the slope of the line has changed. The decrease that, frankly, we would have expected to slow down simply because it's getting so low, the prevalence of smoking is becoming so low among kids, has actually sped up during the period of vaping. So that's a pretty, pretty compelling fact that we need to keep in mind. And then there's one other that uh, I, again, as an economist, find uh, worth considering. Um, whenever governments are either adopting policies or even talking about them to ban or restrict flavors, or, for example, ban the sale of e-cigarettes outright, which San Francisco did, Massachusetts did so temporarily, we see the share prices of the major cigarette companies rise. What is that telling us? It's telling us that the market believes that these two are substitutes for each other, that as vaping goes down, smoking will go up. And conversely, if we get vaping to increase, there's a good possibility that smoking will decline. Yeah, and it's pretty yeah, it's pretty dramatic. Pretty if you want to make money, you know, follow tobacco stocks and follow what the anti-vaping activists are doing. That's, you know, clearly. Yeah, I think it's a good, good observation. So let me ask you this. Um, we are going to get into some of the nitty gritty stuff here in a second. What I'd like to do is ask you about Gateway, because in our pre-interview, we've talked about that quite a bit. And, I, and it really deserves some time because that is part of the hair on fire is that, oh, my God, my kid's vaping, and the next step is smoking. It's, it's obviously a concern, and it's become a very big concern over the last two years when we've seen these very large increases in the percentage of kids who are vaping. Most of them, particularly the kids who are not smokers or weren't smokers, are vaping very infrequently. Probably a lot of that is purely experimentation. But there is a lot more of it than there used to be, and it's understandable, again, that parents are going to be worried about this. But this whole story dates back uh, a, around a decade or so when we first started to see papers coming out, uh, prospective studies that would interview a relatively small group of kids uh, at eighth, ninth grade, something of that sort, sometimes later, and ask them about their smoking behaviors and their vaping behaviors. They would then interview them at a subsequent period, six months to 18 months later, and they'd say, tell us about your smoking and vaping behavior now. Those studies attempted to control for other factors that might be responsible for somebody 
trying cigarettes at a later period. Now I'll come back to that. But what they concluded is that kids who had vaped in the first period but had never smoked were about 3.5 times more likely to try at least one cigarette in the subsequent period, let's say 12 months, than kids who had neither smoked nor vaped. And again, they attempted to control for other influences that would affect whether a kid tries a risky behavior like smoking. Uh, Dr. Warner, is, uh, Dr. Sure. Warner, just let me interrupt here for, for a sec. Uh, which paper are you talking about? Oh, this is a series of uh, 20 some odd papers. Okay. There were studies in Hawaii and all over the place. There were a large number of these studies. There was a meta-analysis that was published by uh, Samir Sinegi and his colleagues, I believe in 2017, but I could be wrong about that. Uh, that's the one that it was a meta-analysis that, by the way, the authorship was essentially the authors of these papers. And they came to the conclusion there was this 3.5 time greater risk. So uh, Lynn Kozlowski and I started looking into the evidence, and we concluded that, in point of fact, there were a lot of holes in it and a lot of weaknesses in it. Uh, one of them is that, with maybe one exception, and it was poorly handled, they didn't look at the question about whether these kids were using other drugs. So just to give you an example, one of the studies that derived the conclusion that vaping led to trying cigarettes, and I want to emphasize it's trial of cigarettes in the next period. It doesn't mean they became smokers. They just tried at least one cigarette. One of those studies went back and reevaluated the exact same data, same kids, same numbers, but they added in their marijuana use and three other of what they called mediating factors. When they did that, the significant relationship between vaping and subsequent smoking disappeared. None of these studies look at other tobacco use behaviors. And that's frankly unacceptable since we live in an era of poly-tobacco use behaviors. Uh, there were all kinds of limits to these studies. And frankly, you had to take them with a grain of salt. Having said that, if we take a look since then, and the gateway theory is the idea that these kids are going to start vaping who never would have used a cigarette. They're going to try cigarettes. They're going to become smokers. So again, we have no evidence whatsoever that those kids have become smokers. And in fact, we have the very strong evidence that there is this escalating decrease in the rate of smoking among kids. I've During got your uh, I've got your paper period. up here right now. Yeah, and you can, I mean, if somebody wants to look at it, they can go through all the arguments. Uh, and that was again, that's a few years old. I think that's from 2017 or something like Correct. that. Correct. Yeah. Uh, but but the evidence there's actually some evidence coming out now that suggests rather than a gateway into smoking, vaping could be a gateway out of it. In other words, the on ramp off ramp argument. Uh, there is some evidence that. Kids who are smokers or were smokers are using vaping as an alternative, and that some of them may be successful in giving up smoking by virtue of their vaping. So I'd say overall, the evidence is extremely weak that vaping is causing kids to smoke, and if anything, it could well be the opposite. And it's controversial to say that, amazingly. It is very controversial to say that. Uh, it is hard Frankly, if you're in the field of public, I've been in public health for, you know, going on almost 50 years now and uh, done a lot of very mainstream stuff and been part of the establishment. 
And uh, now I am seen by some elements of the public health community as some kind of traitor or I'm, I'm not being true to the field of public health. I want to emphasize, by the way, uh, I think it's fair to make the following statement. I think it is fair to say that the vast majority of the grassroots public health community is vehemently anti-vaping. If you look at the scientists, the researchers who've done work in this area, my suspicion is that it's probably pretty evenly split between those who support vaping and those who oppose it, and you don't see the kind of hysteria over it, with some exceptions or some notable exceptions, but you don't see the kind of hysteria that you see in the general public and that I believe has been fostered by CDC and also by the public health community, the major voluntaries, uh, certainly the campaign for tobacco-free kids, and, and even more recently, the Truth Initiative. Well, you said the magic word, hysteria. So that kind of opens up the conversation that you know I wanna have, which is the 18-month conversation. You know, 18 months ago, when uh, then Commissioner Scott Gottlieb got up on the podium and said that there was an epidemic of teen vaping and that it posed a clear and present danger uh, to the youth and that FDA was not going to tolerate another generation of young people to become addicted to nicotine. I mean, that was definitely a, a spark that lit a hysteria that had already been going for some time. So what do you make of that? Because, you know, that's that's the language of epidemic and you know considering where we are now just such a short time later i mean it did was an environment created by public health through the epidemic of teen vaping and then evally that that created an environment of epidemic uh i i don't think so i i wouldn't say that uh, i mean we've had epidemics forever we have an epidemic of obesity that term has been applied to, to obesity. Uh, the word's been around for a long time. I mean, what, what we're experiencing with COVID-19, this is not only an epidemic, this is a pandemic. This is a very real issue and a very serious one. Uh, I understand why people refer to the epidemic of vaping among kids, uh, because those numbers skyrocketed over the last two years, particularly two years ago, 2018. I understand where that's coming from. I think the language is a little unfortunate, frankly. It's not unfortunate to apply it to what we're experiencing with COVID-19. So uh, so the numbers shot up uh, with teen use. That said, though, so then, so then it's fair to call it an epidemic then? Because when, now that the numbers have come back out, and, and let's just talk the numbers, um, after, finally after uh, CDC got the numbers out from the National Youth Tobacco Survey, it took a few, three, four months before researchers got them. And then there was still some uh, delay. It wasn't until actually spring, I think early summer that we did our first pieces. Uh, we had um, Dr. Ray uh, Niera on and went through you know, their look at it. And so what we've heard back from the researchers that have gone through those numbers, we've, we've heard back that there really wasn't much of an epidemic unless you consider, you know, a little bit of curiosity trying once in 30 days, that kind of thing. So it was overblown is kind of the idea. It, again, you're going to interpret this by whatever blinders you're wearing, right? Sure. And to the people who see any use of nicotine, any vaping as a terrible thing, the jump in the number of kids who were vaping was a terrible thing. 
And, you know, it had been, as I said, it rose up through 2014, kind of stabilized, even went down a little, and then skyrocketed in terms of the percentage increase in 2018 and went up again uh, by quite a bit in 2019. If you're worried about kids and vaping, to you, that's an epidemic. We do know that especially among the kids who are not smokers, that most of the use was on an experimental basis and infrequent. So most of the kids were vaping you know, once, twice, maybe five times over the course of a month. They weren't regular users. They weren't addicted to nicotine. This, this whole business about telling the world, as uh, I've heard from some of the proponents of uh, dealing with vaping among kids, that vaping is addicting millions of American youth to nicotine is patently absurd. It's actually impossible if you take a look at the numbers and you look at the lack of frequency of use of vaping products among kids who are not already nicotine users. Sure. Uh, Dr. Warner, I'm going to get you to, I'm just going to throw the shot onto me. I'm going to get you to just run over and uh, tap that lamp. Uh, light of yours there because we <laughs> okay. are i knew that we were going to lose the light as the uh the light was going down there just want to make sure that we we get you nice and bright at least a better enough or would, yeah. you, would you like oh no i think uh, i think that was just the tr just the ticket yeah unless okay. you i mean yeah we'll be back with the overhead light then uh where we were but no that's great so we've got you uh so we can see you again so okay so then let me ask you this um e-valley are you going to let CDC get off the hook so easily? Oh, I think CDC blew it really big time with Evali. First of all, the name itself, the fact that you're still using the term, as, as are others, uh, when we know that it had nothing to do with e-cigarettes, it had to do with vaping of uh, black market THC that was adulterated with vitamin E acetate. Uh, what we have to keep in mind is that from the first days of vaping, CDC came out strongly opposed to it. Uh, the director, Tom Frieden, was personally very strongly opposed to it and quite uh, vehement in his arguments about it. And CDC basically took his lead and adopted it. So they've always been anti-vaping. Uh, when this epidemic first broke out, and I, epidemic's the wrong term for it here because it was relatively short-lived, uh, but there were a lot of a lot of young people who got quite sick, and there were several of them who died. Uh, that was not a good thing. But what we do know about it is that it was something that had not occurred before. Uh, we know that it was an acute respiratory disease, and that's important. Uh, and the idea, and this, in fact, I was always shocked that I never heard anybody talk about this at the outset. The idea that it could be caused by conventional vaping made no sense whatsoever. We'd had vaping around for 10 years, millions of people doing it around the world, and all of a sudden we have this one largely young group of American people getting an acute disease. Nowhere else in the world, it's not a chronic disease that's associated with long-term vaping, it just didn't make sense. As the evidence started to accumulate, became very clear that we were looking largely, if not entirely, at the, initially, at this black market adulterated THC. FDA acknowledged that at an earlier stage than did CDC. CDC, for a long time, was telling everybody, until we understand what's going on here, you should quit 
vaping, all products, just quit. My concern is that they may have scared enough vapors who had quit smoking by vaping to get off of their e-cigarettes and go back to smoking. And that would be a tragedy. For those people, that's a huge increase in their health risk. And it took a long time for CDC to come around and not only acknowledge that we were looking at uh, black market THC rather than conventional vaping of uh, nicotine, but it took them a very long time to tell people that if you were a vapor and you had quit smoking by virtue of vaping, you should continue to vape rather than go back to cigarettes. So I think they really blundered on this one. They mishandled this badly, and it has not had a good effect on the health of many smokers. Potentially, could there be people out there that got sick uh, and maybe even worse because of the CDC foot dragging on coming clean? It's possible, certainly. I mean, we know that the smokers are at immediate risk of illness. Smokers who are, let's say, over 40 are at immediate risk of illness and death by virtue of their smoking. Uh, heart disease can happen, you know, heart attack can happen real fast. And if people have switched from smoking to vaping, they've done themselves a favor. If they go back to smoking, they're imposing those same risks on themselves once again. So this is the point where we, we're going to dive into the big, bad, ugly uh, topic here, because you mentioned that CDC took a very long time to kind of, you know, uh, go the FDA route and, and be clear. Um, and that was actually February 25th of 2020, which was the exact same day they held their telebriefing, which lit the world's hair on fire with the with what I call the COVID hysteria. But obviously, that's just my uh, personal analysis of it. But needless to say, they have kind of run right into each other. And with uh, the vaping-related lung illness, we had six months of the media with every single day dramatic headlines announcing new cases of E-Valley and then, of course, more deaths. And that really kind of just ticked up to just moments ago. And as somebody who's been covering public health now, and obviously a lot of great researchers like you on our show, and we do care about public health. I've got a lot of respect for public health. However, you know, you know what we've seen here, what I would call, you know, a purposeful campaign to mislead the American public with regard to vaping and a mysterious new vaping-related lung disease, quote-unquote. So I have a really hard time just taking CDC at face value when they crash the entire global economy with some statements on a, um, on a telebriefing. You mean with, with regard to COVID? Yeah. I, I mean, like I said on our pre-interview, I just wonder about the state of mind that exists with inside public health with such a, a hate on, you know, vaping. Um, nothing, I don't think it's, it's purposeful with COVID. It's just, I think it's fair to say that as, as people who watch public health, who report on public health, who have experienced now some years of, of having to respond all the time to ever kind of changing public health approaches to vaping and, and nicotine. I just think that an environment has been created with inside a certain echelon of public health that might've been more prone to hysteria because there was six months that we just had of a full blown hysteria over a lung illness that had nothing to do with traditional nicotine vaping products. 
Well, I'm afraid I can't agree with you on that one. Please disagree. Uh, please, please disagree. Feel I, free. I, I want to be very cautious here. I'm not an epidemiologist. I have studied the subject a little bit. Uh, I have learned a lot uh, from my infectious disease uh, colleagues and epidemiological colleagues uh, over the years. Uh, I think, if anything, the COVID-19 pandemic is being underplayed. Uh, I am very concerned that we are going to be looking at uh, some real serious death, uh, very serious illnesses, and it's going to occur over a period of months, two years. Uh, I know everybody is hoping uh, that somehow, by some miracle, this is going to be done with during the summer. Uh, we may see the disease uh, hibernate to some extent over the summer. I will be personally shocked and utterly thrilled if this doesn't come back in a big way during the following fall and winter. And we're not going to have a vaccine available for the public for this for about two years. And that's under optimistic assumptions. This has a very high mortality rate. It appears to be about 2%. That's much higher than the flu. In the case of the flu, Lots of people have been uh, vaccinated against it. So you have much less exposure to it, much less chance for its transmission. And um, I read a piece recently, which actually was very consistent with some estimates that I had made myself, that said under the worst circumstances, and I think we're not handling this well at the federal level whatsoever. Under the worst circumstances, we could have 2 million people or more Americans die as a result of COVID-19 in the next year or two. And to put that number in perspective, we have about two and a half, 2.7 million deaths from all causes in a given year. We could be looking at a large fraction of that just from this one disease. I think uh, if anything, the federal government is doing a real disservice by underestimating the importance of this and the importance of social distancing and getting this under control. Has the administration been frustrating public health a bit, you think? Oh, there's no question about it. It's been enormously frustrating for public health. Uh, just watch Anthony Fauci, who is probably the most respected person in the United States, the director of National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease. Uh, and he long has been the most uh, respected person when it comes to infectious disease issues. Uh, he is occasionally, not always, put in front of the cameras for the daily briefing, he should be the one doing the briefing. It should not be President Trump. It should not be Vice President Pence. Uh, but he has been very cautious in his wording. The president said recently in one of these briefings uh, that this is going to be over soon. And uh, Fauci said, well, I, I just want to qualify that and say, I don't think this is going to be over in a matter of weeks. Uh, it may be many weeks or even a few months. My guess is he was toning that down from what he really believes, which is that it's going to be a lot of months. Mm. And when we were talking earlier, uh, you responded to a comment that I had said, because one of my pushbacks on this is that, geez, it's not like this is hemorrhagic fever or something like that, where it just ravages through the community. One day you get a you know a fever and the next day you are out, you are dead. Whereas, you know, Ebola, for instance, kills you right away. And so, it, you know, it doesn't really spread that much. And so, it, you know, that hasn't been explained enough. And I think that feeds into the hysteria. And you made a great comment about Ebola. 
Yeah, I mean, Ebola is a dumb bug. You know, if you're a bug and you want to survive, ideally, you don't want to hurt anybody. You just want to be a parasite and live on somebody and then have them pass it along to the next person. That's the ideal. Uh, this particular bug, COVID-19, appears to be pretty smart uh, because it's managed to make itself very infectious. And it has a mortality rate. Again, a 2% mortality rate may not sound like much, but especially when you're talking about people in my age bracket or people who have compromised immune systems, those numbers rate, you know, they go up to like eight to 10%. So let me ask you that, let me ask you this, Dr. Warner, about that. Um, because we don't have proper testing, right? It, it didn't have it in place and we're likely not to ever really have a true number of how many Americans were infected or even globally for that matter. Um, how are we going to really know what that mortality rate is with any kind of certainty? In other words, to evaluate whether or not the response was either adequate, not adequate, or overblown. Well, I don't, I don't think we're ever going to know the exact number. There's no way to do that. Uh, if you go back to 1918, to the so-called Spanish flu, 1918-1919, which is the closest comparable experience that we have, that's 100 years ago now, uh, it was estimated that about a third of the world's population was infected, and there were 50 million deaths. And that was a less lethal uh, virus than this one. Uh, that's a pretty terrifying set of numbers. Hopefully, we know a whole lot more than they did back 100 years ago, and we're going to restrict it so we don't see that. Once we, once we have enough people who've experienced it and recovered from it, once we have enough vaccine available so that people can essentially be protected through vaccination, once we have treatments that are more effective, uh, my suspicion is this is going to become something like the annual flu. It's just going to be around and people will just live with it and uh, we'll get used to it. But uh, we're not there now. And this is a very scary time from a public health point of view. And I don't think the public understands that. So you don't think this is an overreaction? I think it's an underreaction. I think what I think two things that should be done at the federal level. And again, I want to absolutely emphasize I'm not an epidemiologist. I'm not an infectious disease expert. I'm simply talking as someone who's had a half century career in public health. OK, I think that what President Trump and the administration should do, first of all, I think they should get some major companies, require them to make the respirators and the other uh, equipment that we need for the uh, medical community to deal with the disease. There's going to be an onslaught of disease. We haven't seen anything yet. This is just starting. I mean, we're going to see all the numbers skyrocketing over the next month or so. Uh, we're going to have lots of medical settings where you, doctors are going to have to choose which patient dies and which patient lives because they're not going to be able to give them the care that they require. The whole idea about flattening the curve through social distancing is not that you're going to reduce the number of infections, but you're going to spread them out over a much longer period of time, which will allow the medical system to be able to adapt, get more equipment, and provide people what they need. So I think that's one thing. I also think the notion that we're going kind of state by state with them trying to get companies to produce the equipment rather than having a federal order to do that is pathetic. In World War II, the federal government ordered various factories, uh, Willow Run, 
okay, in, in Michigan to produce planes and tanks instead of cars, and they turned them out rapidly, effectively, and probably helped us win the war as a consequence of that. This is a war of its own kind, and uh, if we're not going to fight it like it's a war, we're going to be in, in deep trouble. I personally would like to see a federal encouragement of some kind of social distancing, preferably with people staying in their homes as much as they can for a period of several weeks, at least three or four or five weeks, and see where we are at that point. But we're not getting that kind of leadership from the federal government. And the president is plainly and simply saying things that the experts don't agree with. So is it reasonable to conclude that government can actually take measures to stop a virus from spreading? Because in the end, it I mean... Can take, it can take measures to slow up the spread of the virus. And if we can slow it up again to the point where we can protect the public who are going to have to be hospitalized so that they can be hospitalized with the proper care and we can slow it up enough that we can develop a vaccine and get it out to the public, that we can figure out what works from a treatment perspective, we could save a lot of lives. There's probably nothing much that we could do at this point that would save as many lives as to get a handle on that worldwide. And by the way, I'm somebody who's always said the single most important thing we could ever do to save lives in the world would be to get rid of smoking. And so right now, from a short-term perspective, this is a more serious threat for the numbers of people who are going to suffer and die as a consequence. Great. So one more question on this, and it goes you know, right to the heart of, of your experience and credentials, because on my end uh, and a lot of our viewers uh, that have commented to us, you know, the concern, of course, is the economy and the economy is not just businesses and in capitalism. We're, we're talking about when the economy crashes, that can have a huge, massive uh, impact on public health to the detriment of public health, whether it's depression, suicide, drug use, uh, abuse, all of the things that happen. And because, you you know, your PhD is in economics and obviously economics you know, runs through your work through public health. What can you say about that? Absolutely correct. And it's something that we need to be highly attuned to as we go through trying to deal with this virus, people will get sick in terms of mental health and physical health, the stress. That, so, so people like me, again, I'm not really the, the person who should be talking about COVID-19, but the people who are causing others to become stressed about the experience that we're going through now, stress can lead to heart disease. Uh, it, we can find it leading to mental health problems. You mentioned suicide. There are going to be adverse health consequences of the economic downturn simply because we know that when people are unemployed, that's bad for their health. Uh, if you try to make a comparison of the health consequences of sort of ignoring social distancing and ignoring a lot of the state rules right now, which say, stay inside, don't leave your homes. Uh, my personal understanding is that the health consequences of sort of forgetting about COVID and just going about our business would be much greater than the adverse health consequences of admittedly allowing the economy to go to hell for a while here, for sure, uh, as we you know, keep ourselves in place and, and stay home. Uh, this is going to be extremely costly. Whatever happens, doesn't matter which way we go with it, it's going to be very costly. I think it's going to be more costly if we ignore the epidemic.
Okay, fair enough. So one more, uh, it's not COVID, uh, though it touches, but it's not COVID. Um, and then we're going to talk uh, the PMTA. And this is, it's, it's COVID in the sense that, again, it's the frustration that um, vapors have with regard to um, news coverage. And so I'm just going to show the one coverage that uh, we're not going to, because the one that you and I talked about earlier today. So just this one, but it it's begs the thing about everything else because the onslaught of bad media coverage, which is fueled by what we at RegWatch uh, kindly call suspect science. Um, and so this was uh, coronavirus updates from NBC. This was last uh, weekend. Vaping, one of the best ways to trash your lungs and maybe die if you catch coronavirus. And I think that is perfect example of kind of the, so that's the the convergence of COVID uh, and and vaping, right? Can you comment on that? Well, I can say it would be awfully good to have some good science here that we could follow. I don't have the scientific expertise to to address it. Mm. I don't know whether vaping influences uh, one's reaction to COVID at all. Sure. Uh, I've even seen one study that suggested that smoking might be protective from COVID, which is, it seems crazy. But this, the science on this is obviously as new as COVID is new. Well, we don't know a lot about the science of COVID. So how are we going to know a lot about the science of COVID and X, Y, or Z? Sure. So, so but vaping, sure. but vaping though, with regards to smoking, has been really intensely covered. And of course, we've got the divide within public health on that. So let's just move off of COVID now, because but okay. the science on vaping, the science on vaping, um, in our opinion, is corrupted. In some cases, we know we've seen think, the. We've I think the science. I think the science on vaping, and we could say even more generally, the science on uh, tobacco control, is corrupted in many instances. There are a lot of people on both sides of the issue uh, who engage in uh, research that is suspect, that reflects their biases, and in many instances, they probably don't even recognize that their biases are influencing their research. In some cases, I think they do. And uh, it's a real problem in science in general. It's a huge problem in science related to public policy issues like vaping. And uh, it's just we, we don't have the objective, balanced science and scientific discussion that we need to have in this area. So how did uh, how did this happen to science? And I'm, I'll bring up something from my end. I know that in the 1990s when I did my graduate work, which is essentially a postmodern degree, a degree in postmodernism. And I know that coming out of there, I had a strong feeling that science is in fact, what it is is actually a process of truth making. Now truth isn't necessarily, if you're a postmodernist, there is no such thing as truth, but you happily use the concept of truth a lot because it's a powerful concept. So science is not really a, a process about discovery, experiment and discovery. It's a process of truth making. Um, and so, and that's what I see operating all over the place. So when you talk about how a, a lot of science has, has these problems, I see that as a hundred percent the reason why. I'm wondering if that rings true. <laughs> I, I think, I think your observation of truth making is a really interesting way to look at a lot of science. Uh, I don't agree that science is not a process of discovery. In many instances, it is. Sure. Uh, it's absolutely exactly what it is. But, uh, but people are trying to make their point through science in many instances. They're trying to create their truth 
their facts, uh, their beliefs. They want them enshrined in a scientific cloak. And uh, you do see that on both sides. And uh, particularly, I think there's some pretty good evidence that uh, the anti-vaping side has uh, done a lot of that. Yeah, very disturbing. So let's move to the regulatory issue now, because all of that science, all of the hysteria and everything else has left the vaping industry in the United States. Now, of course, our Canadian audience, they're feeling the pressure too as well. And that's quite unfortunate. And we'll finish up our uh, show with a bit of a discussion about Canada and so forth. But let's move into the U.S. and PMTA process. We're coming down to just, what, five weeks now or so, and then that's going to hit. What do you think about what's about to happen? Well, I'm very worried by it. Uh, I think it could be a real disaster for public health. Uh, it could be a real disaster for innovation in finding alternatives to smoking. Uh, it, it looks like... It, I'm told by the authorities at FDA that the 2009 law requires them to follow the procedures they do for a PMTA. Those procedures turn into an incredibly expensive, incredibly time-consuming process that requires a company to be knee-deep in lawyers, knee-deep in engineers, uh, to have the best social scientists for the research that they have to do, uh, to have the best physicians in-house uh, uh, or uh, ready for hire, to be able to come up with the kind of application that could be approved by FDA. It's an extraordinarily time-consuming and expensive process. And what it means is that small businesses, uh, small manufacturers of vaping products, um, vape shops that mix their own juices, uh, they basically are going to be put out of business by the process. Now, I think it's important to recognize this wasn't FDA's decision. This was a court case that forced them to have these PMTAs submitted by May of this year. Uh, FDA actually had a pretty reasonable approach to this a few years ago, which when they were talking about uh, the, the idea of coming up with a nicotine, a, a reduced nicotine cigarette and having alternatives available for people that needed their nicotine, less hazardous products. I mean, you were talking about the former commissioner. Uh, he uh, issued a, a, a statement that I thought was absolutely remarkable coming out of a government agency, and in particularly one in this administration, that just made a lot of sense about how to approach the problem of nicotine and it acknowledged the spectrum of nicotine products and the variation in risk across that spectrum. Right now, what the I guess it's the way that FDA is carrying out its mandate with the PMTA, it appears that it basically is going to give the large cigarette companies and a handful of vaping product companies like Juul that's very affluent the opportunity to submit PMTAs that might have a chance of going through. But the small entrepreneurs, the people who really are responsible for a lot of the innovation, uh, unless they can find some way to do it as a collective, as a group, uh, they're going to be out of luck. And I think it's very frightening for public health. Yeah, so, I mean, if all, if all these vape shops, the small and medium-sized businesses you know, get wiped out because of PMTA, what will happen? What would your prediction for public health impact? Well, I suspect we're still going to see vaping products. 
Uh, we know the major cigarette manufacturers all produce them. So they're going to have them. I don't honestly know how hard they will push them uh, or even how good they will try to make them for the simple reason that uh, they've got cigarettes. You know, this is the uh, goose that laid the golden egg. They make a, a fortune off of cigarettes. And what it, regardless of what they say, they're going to want to sell as many cigarettes for as long as they possibly can. So that suggests to me that they're not going to be quite as enthusiastic about selling vaping products as people whose livelihood depends on it. Uh, there are other products like the heat not burn or heated tobacco products like ICOS. Uh, ICOS in its original version has been approved for marketing. They've been doing test marketing in Georgia. Uh, we may well see more of that. There's a lot of the heated tobacco products in Japan, for example, where we have very impressive evidence over a three-year period Cigarette sales declined by 27%. I don't think that's ever happened anywhere in the world in the last century. 27% decline in three years, and there was a comparable increase in the sales of the heated tobacco products, specifically ICOS, Philip Morris International's product, and Japan Tobacco's Plume. So we've got some evidence that harm reduction can work. Uh, we've got that with vaping. We've got it now with heated tobacco products. And of course, we have the one great natural experiment, which was snus in Sweden. Still is snus in Sweden. Sweden, uh, large proportions of Swedish males started using snus instead of smoking four decades ago or so. And uh, the effects on their health have been studied by the Swedish health ministry innumerable times since then. And what we know is that Sweden has the lowest rate of male smoking in all of the European Union. In fact, it may be the lowest rate of male smoking of any significant country in the world. And if we take a look at the data for tobacco-related disease deaths, Sweden, the men, are below the second lowest country in the European Union for all categories of tobacco-related deaths, including the lump sum category of all tobacco deaths. Um, SNUS has saved a lot of lives in Sweden. It appears that it's doing it in Norway over the last several years when we've seen dramatic declines in cigarette smoking among both men and women, and more women uh, use SNUS there than they do in Sweden. So, uh, you know, it's it's a tobacco it's a tobacco product. It yields nicotine. It's got some carcinogens in it, although there is no evidence that it causes any cancer whatsoever. And uh, it, the, the evidence from Sweden I find very compelling, and it's a long-standing evidence. So let me show you uh, a group here on Facebook. Uh, to your point, in terms of you know banding together as a collective, uh, kind of a thing to uh, to put together uh, PMTA. Uh, we won't, you know, go through too much on this, but I do want to give them a little bit of love because it's it, the group is called PMTA underscore sharing. Uh, Char Owen is the one that's been putting this together, and uh, you know they've been working really hard, um, going through the checklists together, trying talking to the F uh, reaching out to uh, here's the CTP. Thank you for contacting the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. They're looking to try to get extensions to the deadline. Uh, that is not happening. Uh, here's CTP saying FDA is currently engaged in internal discussions to determine how to best address this issue. 
But what we know, what we've heard back so far, at least from what Char has uh, posted, there is not a lot yet of uh, of love uh, happening with regard to that. But oh, and there we are, of course. So they've got <laughs> that going right there. So they've got <clears throat> training going on, you know, Excel sheets. They're they're you know trying to do all the different requirements and pull that pull that together. So is this the kind of thing that you're talking about when you're saying the route uh, to uh, get through this if you're small to mid-sized? I think it's probably the only route. I don't think a small entrepreneur can possibly put together an acceptable uh, PMTA. Having said that, I would strongly encourage these folks to get an application in before the deadline, even if it's not complete, because there's at least an argument to be made that FDA will return to them and say your application was not adequate in the following context and it needs the following kinds of information and send it back to them and give them a period of time to complete it, uh, to update it, to refine it. Uh, and I would hope that something like that would be acceptable to FDA. I do know that I'm, I'm sure the, the the small entrepreneurs may not feel this way, but I do know that FDA has made several initiatives to try to get entrepreneurs to come to speak to them. They've encouraged them to do that. And I think that within FDA, and I'm not saying throughout FDA, I'm saying within FDA, there is a group of people who are sympathetic to the notion that vaping is important to doing their job of protecting the public health correctly. So I would encourage people to contact FDA. I would certainly encourage them to do what sounds like a most interesting initiative of trying to put in a PMTA, even if it's not complete. And by the way, the companies like Philip Morris International who submit these PMTAs are always, always have them sent back to them for changes and additional information. Nobody gets through on the first try, uh, even the major companies. So there may be a foot in the door for them to do this. And what the ideal from my perspective would be, would be to have FDA approve a product class like perhaps a class of e-cigarettes or vaping products and say, we will now establish product standards. We'll use some of the pre presumably least hazardous of the products in this category and establish product standards so that if you meet these standards, you can continue to sell your products. And all you gotta do is attest that you're meeting the standards. FDA would be doing some surprise visits around the country and some testing. And frankly, I would say if they found somebody who wasn't complying, they should lose their license. They should right away. So this is a, but, this is a recommendation that would be different than the PMTA process. Absolutely. And it may be completely impossible giving the law itself. I'm not a lawyer. I don't know how to evaluate that. Mm. That's what I've been told that by some people within FDA, that what they're doing is basically just following the law and they don't have much, if any, flexibility. I don't know that. Yeah, that's hard to know exactly. But that's right. The idea being is that if everybody was using uh, already pre-approved, you know, maybe under PMTA ingredients, your PG, your VG and so forth and your flavorings and stuff like that. So if all that has been cleared already and you're mixing uh, and, and so forth and subject to, you know, spot testing uh, for emissions and stuff like that. And obviously, ice, you know, your your ISO facilities uh, and all of the other requirements for good manufacturing practices, you would think that that would be enough. 
Well, you'd like to think so. I mean, I, I keep going back to the core, the heart of the 2009 legislation that created the Center for Tobacco Products. And it says that we want to do measures, policy measures, regulations that are appropriate for the protection of the public health. And my perspective is that something like the PMTA process is so difficult, so inordinately expensive, so time consuming, so demanding of resources that you just can't even get into the issue of whether it's in the interests of protecting the public health. And then they expect you to prove that. And I'm not sure how you can ever prove that for a novel product that hasn't been around for 20, 30, 40 years. We, I don't think it can be proved. I think what we need to do is go with a preponderance of the evidence, the kind of thing we'd see in a civil lawsuit rather than a criminal lawsuit. This is being treated as the very worst of the criminal lawsuits in my eyes. And that's interesting. When In 2016, when the deeming rule came out, uh, buried in there, uh, of course, what you're referencing in terms of having to prove there's a net benefit to public health uh, for your product to get approved, that was even more onerous that it was even to your locale. So if you were a vaping shop yeah. and you and you were making a juice or whatever, <clears throat> you had to prove that around your net net area, your geography, that it was going to have a net benefit to public health. And it seems, for one, it seems, I'm going to use the word asinine, uh, but maybe that's a little hard. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you. Ironically, uh, depending on your local neighborhood, you might actually be able to do something there. You might be able to, if you have a lot of people who quit smoking by coming to your vape shop and buying your products, you could certainly provide that as evidence because it's going to be awfully hard to argue that vaping is as hazardous as cigarette smoking. And if you've got a significant number of people whom you have helped to quit smoking, and that number is exceeding what you would expect in the background rate of quitting, and you could do some kind of survey in the community, maybe you'd have some good evidence toward that effect. But we just, it, it's almost inconceivable that anybody can prove something of this nature. In and, it always, and it always comes back to the analogy thing, right? Public health will say, we deal on population level. So, you know, analogies, of, I don't care if 10,000 people respond to a survey and say that flavors are important, they help you quit smoking. Uh, you know, we're in population level stuff, right? And so, but then, the, but then public health will be very quick to use analogies uh, when it comes to things that um, drive the goal. But let's not, let's finish up here. Um, let me ask you this with FDA, the last one on FDA. You obviously have uh, their ear in some manner. And if you... Uh, if you were to be in a room with some people at FDA that uh, could make a difference, what would your message be to them? Well, again, I, I wish I understood what constraints they were operating under, because my message would be, we have a product category here, vaping products that are far less hazardous than the product that you were basically formed to deal with, which is cigarettes and other combusted tobacco products. Uh, and we need to figure out how to take advantage of the evidence, which is pretty strong in my opinion, that vaping is helping a subset of smokers to get off of cigarettes. And we need to say, this is what is the essence of what the Center for Tobacco Products should be doing. Let's figure out how to do it. And again, I can't deal with the legal constraints. That's 
what they have to figure out. No, there's plenty of lawyers on all sides on this issue. That's yeah. for sure. So um, you're in Can Let's jump to Canada for a second. And Canada's a little bit of a unique situation because, of course, they actually here in Canada made vaping legal. I mean, it's one of the only Western countries to have done that, like full on. Like they reviewed it, the science, went through the whole process, became legal, royal assent. And within months after the vaping epidemic hit and hair on fire, and it's just been unraveling ever since. So with Canada, I mean, as a public health professional, somebody who sits on the advisory board and has had their eye on what's going on north of the border, what's your assessment that you can assess going on up here? And do you have some advice for both Health Canada and the industry in Canada? You know, I, I, first of all, I want to say I have been very impressed with this uh, Vaping Products Advisory Board. Uh, it is balanced. It's got people representing a lot of different views, and it's got some very serious scientific talent on it. And uh, I have learned an enormous amount by virtue of participating in that. Uh, what we know and what we've been discussing really throughout the past hour plus is that politics and personal views are coloring everything that's going on in the area of vaping. That's happening in Canada just as it's happening everywhere else. Uh, it's really difficult to get a handle on how we should deal with all this stuff and get people to talk to each other in a rational fashion. One of the things I really like about this vaping advisory board is we're doing that. We've got people from both sides of the aisle here, people who are not so enthusiastic about vaping, others who are enthusiastic about it. And we are talking with each other in a very civil manner, and we're looking at the evidence. And I can only say I think Health Canada is getting some good advice from this board, and I hope that that can influence what the politicians then do subsequently. Well, that's fantastic. Well, Dr. Warner, I got to thank you for all of your time and for the time for our pre-interview uh, calls, because, you know, the interview certainly benefited greatly from that. Great. Well, I've enjoyed it. And I thank you. I really appreciate uh, your expertise and interest in the issue. Well, thank you very much. And you just hang tight right there for a second as I just close up. I want to let everybody know that we've got Greg Connolly, the president of the American Vaping Association, coming up on Sunday at the same time, 7 p.m. Eastern and 4 p.m. Pacific, to talk about the issues that are going on in the U.S. and get some of his reaction, actually, from uh, this interview tonight with uh, Dr. Warner. And that is it for this edition of RegWatch. Before you head off, please go on over to support.regulatorwatch.com. That's support.regulatorwatch.com. And consider making a financial contribution to our coverage. It's easy. Just dig into your wallet and find a few dollars and toss them our way. You can even cough on cash and put it in an envelope and send it to me because I'm fine. I, I'm, I'm, I'm hearty. But anyhow, just, you know, all seriousness. If you get a chance, please do check that out and see if you can give us a hand with our coverage. And while online, don't forget to like us on Facebook and to follow us on Twitter. For RegulatorWatch.com, I'm Brent Stafford.